Investors Chronicle. Hello and a very warm welcome back to the IC Interviews podcast. I'm Dave Baxter. I'm the funds editor on the Investors Chronicle, and I'm very excited to introduce today's guest. Tom Slater is the manager on the Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust alongside Deputy Manager Lawrence Burns, one of the biggest UK-listed investment trusts with a market cap of nearly £12 billion at the time of recording. Scottish Mortgage is very widely held and known for targeting the dominant trends of the future, from transformations in healthcare to decarbonisation and the increased digitalisation of our lives. However, as investors will know, it has been a very turbulent rise in recent times. Uh, If we look back, Scottish Mortgage has made a share price total return of around 300% over the decade to mid-January 2024. But there have certainly been some notable bumps in the rows. To give you one example, investors were down by around 45% in 2022. And people looking to the future do worry about the state of the portfolio in a world where interest rates and the cost of debt are higher. So, Tom, hi, thanks for coming on the show. How are you doing? Thank you very much for for having me. Delighted to be here. So, obviously, I I alluded there to performance. We've had some quite sort of volatile uh, times with the fund. It's interesting to see, uh, looking at recent months, uh, Scottish Mortgage has kind of made hay during the big rally that we saw in the final quarter of 2023. You know, we saw expectations of lower interest rates, maybe even cuts in future, giving a big boost to what were perceived as kind of growth and duration stocks. But, you know, if we look at times when people might have been really interested in the fund, say someone had invested at the start of 2021, for example, they're still down to the tune of around kind of 35%. So I think a lot of people will be asking kind of how's the portfolio going to make it back? What's the case for for recovery? Yeah, sure. So it has been a, a really quite volatile period for us. And I suppose the, the important point to make at the, the outset is that we don't try to minimize volatility. You know, the the way that we think about trust is that we're trying to be patient owners of what we think are the world's most exciting growth companies. Um, where we, we find those companies, we aim to to hold those 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 stocks with that with as little interference as possible so that that return can accrue to our shareholders. And that means that for any given year, the outcome is pretty much set at the start. Um, we aren't going to try and, and trade. We aren't going to adapt what we're doing for market conditions. And therefore, if you want to own shares in Scottish Mortgage, I think you need a time horizon of, of at least five years and, and the ability to tolerate that volatility. Now, if you look through the, the period that, that, that we've seen, it's been challenging for our companies for a number of reasons. You know, firstly, um, you've seen growth decelerate. So the companies are still growing, but they've not not at the rate that they were previously. You know, in in some instances, you saw what happened during COVID bring forward some demand. You you just the the general um, reduction in confidence and a greater focus on cost in the period post COVID has has also hurt some of the companies. At the same time, you've seen a significant decline in valuation multiples. You know, related to the point that you were making about about interest rates, but but. Underlying that, if you look at, at the individual companies, you know, despite the growth slowing a bit, they continue to grow strongly. You know, top 10 public holdings are growing. Their, their revenues at just under 40%. The same is true of, of our top 10 private holdings. 
So not quite as fast as they were before, but still by anybody's standards, pretty rapid growth. They're adapting to that change in conditions that you've seen that capital now has a cost, interest rates have gone up. So if you look at the free cash flow generation from the portfolio, it's almost doubled in the past year. Yeah, there's this healthy dose of prioritization going into projects. Companies are focusing on generating cash from operations because they, they can't easily access cash from other sources. You've, you've still got robust growth. You've got accelerating um, um, free cash flow generation. And then you've got big structural tailwinds that are driving some of these companies forward. You, know, you mentioned digitization. It's, you, know, I, I, you, know, you could look at AI within that. Um, you could look at you know, what's happening in, in healthcare and, and you know, the transition to a, a different ways of, of diagnosing and treating disease, um, you know, the, the move to a sort of post-carbon economy. There are these really big structural drivers. So robust revenue growth underpinned by, by these, these structural drivers and growing free cash flow are the reasons that, that I look to the, to the future with, with some degree of confidence. So let's turn then more to AI, perhaps the theme of 2023 and drove much of the kind of returns we saw from the US equity markets. NVIDIA is kind of one of your major positions, but you did from your reports appear to actually kind of reduce it in the year to the end of March 2023. And I suppose my question is kind of, do you worry about the kind of timing risks there? And do you fear that you kind of missed the kind of the biggest gains to be had? What is there else to come? Yeah, so we've been interested in AI for a long time. You know, if you if you take Nvidia as as your example, we bought the shares in 2016. But but we have a number of other holdings which which we think are you know beneficiaries of, of what's going on there. But even we have been surprised by the pace of progress that you've seen in the past 12 or 18 months. Now why why does it matter? You know, if if you look at the way that the dominant um, technology paradigms evolve. It's really interesting to see that that you you sort of have this underlying process of capitalism, you know, that, that new products, new markets, new methods of production, new industrial organizations drive progress, drive stock markets, but they don't move at an even pace. You go through periods of calm and then you go through periods of rapid change. And you know, the, the incumbents tend to thrive in the periods of calm, but new players come in periods of change. So if you look at the past 30 or 40 years, you know, we, we had AT&T in fixed line telecoms, you had IBM in personal computers, you had you know, Microsoft, Intel, when you thought about the client server model of computing. And then you, know, you had Google and Apple when we moved towards mobile, towards cloud, and, and, and subsequently Amazon and Facebook. So you saw each of these transitions you know, give rise to new big companies. And that's why I think AI is uh, developments in AI are so interesting, and we and we need to keep such a close eye on them because you know, this is a, this is a a general purpose technology. It can be deployed very widely. You know, there's huge demand for intelligence in in almost every industry, and so you know, it it seems to us that you you you're transitioning away from one of these periods of calm, where there was an established technology stack, where there were established winners, towards a period of change, and that creates opportunity. It's shown up first in in Nvidia's accounts. Um, so they did about eighteen billion dollars of revenue in the third quarter. That's triple what they were doing a year ago. Yeah, this this isn't just hype. It's backed by real by real numbers and 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 real cash flows and, and profits. I think it it even at the current levels of capability broadens out to be something much much more than that. I mean, it's interesting you mentioned sort of incumbents and newer names and so on. Um, there, there was an interesting take from Terry Smith actually recently on kind of AI. 
you know, he's making the case that the market may have already decided it can identify AI winners. And he mentioned, you know, NVIDIA being one and also Microsoft being one. But he did make the interesting point that many of the kind of early leaders we do see in big technological developments do end up, I suppose, either becoming less dominant or even falling by the wayside. And he mentioned things like AOL in internet services, you know, Nokia, mobile phones, Yahoo in search engines. I mean, where does NVIDIA fall in that equation? And how are you, I suppose, striking a balance between sort of incumbents and kind of newer upstarts and so on? Yeah. Um, so I think that there's a really interesting point in there. And that absolutely, we must be wary of of jumping to conclusions. Mm. You know, I, for me, I think if you look at what's what's going on with AI, you know, there are enough threads to that argument to to um, make me increasingly convinced that it's a really important shift. But that's not the same thing as saying that the implications are clear or that the winners are known. Far from it. Now, I think, you know, what you can say about NVIDIA is it's very concretely coming through in the numbers of that company. And you know, they, they have spent decades building the computing technology that allows them to, to be relevant to AI. You know, the, it, it just so happened that this technology that they built for computer gaming was, was perfectly suited to this use case. But it's, it's not just around the, that silicon design, but it's also around the ecosystem that goes with it, the software, um, the, the, the servers that, that are built around that silicon. Um, and so th- those seem like very um, high moats for others to challenge. Now, you can maybe challenge that in specific areas if you have a specific application, but it's it's that general purpose GPU that is is very difficult to attack you know, with, without without that heritage. So you know, I, I think the process of capitalism is such that that huge amounts of money will be thrown at this area. Others will you know will try to get into into this this business, and we should absolutely expect that. The question is, how long does that take? What how how enduring is the the advantage that Nvidia has today? But if you if you then broaden that out and say, look at the software stack, I think the winners are, are far from clear. What what we're looking for is companies that have technical founders that really understand the technology that that can understand where it can be applied and then have the business models to exploit it. Because I think you, you probably go through a hype cycle. I think there's a lot of people playing with this technology today who will conclude that, you know, it, it's it's interesting in theory, but they can't really deploy it in their business. But I think there's a category of companies that are going to be able to deploy it quickly, very successfully. And so it's it's being alert to where, where those might be. I, I suppose with the kind of areas that you tend to focus on, the hype cycle must be quite a sort of real risk and something that you have to try and navigate. What are the key things you might look for when trying to decide, I suppose, what is the genuine article versus something that's kind of riding that wave? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I suppose just one on on investment philosophy to start with. We talk in the philosophy section of our annual reports about the idea of growth, growth at an unreasonable price. So in, in contrast to the growth at a reasonable price philosophies that, that many investors embrace, what we're getting at with that um, is not that we just want to pay big multiples for companies. Instead, it's where you see new big growth opportunities. There will be excitement. Share, you know, and, if, and if you look at the, price, the share price of companies, we will tend to underestimate the ones that turn out to be successful, the really big winners. You, know, you you could have bought into Google Alphabet for 
a very long time after you know people had seen some promise in it and and still made a huge amount of money. But for the ones that people are excited about and don't come to anything, you'll have massively overpaid. So so the prices were unreasonable. They were either far too high or far too low. And you've got to be prepared to embrace that because of the payoff structure, that you will make far more money in the ones that you're right about than you will lose in, in the stocks that you get wrong that prove to be overhyped. So you know, before you get on to trying to, to cut through the hype, I think it's important just to give you that, that grounding in terms of the, the investment philosophy, how we, we approach these things in the first place. And then I think the next piece that I would move on to is thinking about company culture. Company culture, if you're going to own a stock for six months, company culture doesn't really matter at all. It, you know, it's very unlikely to um, impact the share price outcome over six months. But I think if you extend the, the time frame for five years, 10 years, it becomes almost the only thing that matters. What is it about that organization, the culture, that gives it an edge in exploiting whatever the technology is? You know, if, you know, yes, there's excitement, there's hype, but what is it about this organization that will allow it to exploit that opportunity that people are starting to get excited about? And why will that translate into super normal returns over the long run? And you know, are there people, are there leaders, are there entrepreneurs that we would trust to, to navigate that, inev you know, that inevitable period of overexcitement, the, the inevitable disappointment afterwards, but really having people who are focused on just building for the long term to exploit that long run opportunity. I suppose staying with those kind of leaders, I mean, an, an obvious name that you guys have dealt with over many years is Elon Musk, but who else would kind of stand out at the minute in terms of figures that I suppose would kind of allure you to a, a company? Well, so to, to take a specific example, we recently brought in back, back into Meta, the owners of, of Facebook. And with Mark Zuckerberg, you, know, you, you have a leader who's been there for the long term, who's shown he's been prepared to invest in a long term vision, you know, even when there's, when there's a great degree of skepticism about it. You know, I, I, I take, cite the example of Instagram, which was, you know, I guess that was back in 2012, maybe. There was huge... Um, Huge skepticism about about that transaction, and it's proven to to you know be really foresighted. Now, part of the reason for buying back into Meta is it fits exactly the the description I was talking about there, a, a, a business run by a founder leader who's technical, who understands the technology, understands what's going on with AI, but also has a lot of opportunities to deploy it in his business. So, take the example of messaging. So, Facebook owns um, two of the world's largest messaging platforms. Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp. Both of those applications have over 2 billion users and, and they're very lightly monetized. They, you know, they make very little money off, off an individual user in any given year. Now, one way to monetize those user bases is what are called click to message ads. So you, know, you are, you're browsing a, you know, a, a website and you're interested in a product, but you want to know something more about it. So you click to message in, in, in Messenger or WhatsApp. And those, that's, that's been shown to be a really effective advertising technique. It's a, a really effective way to engage with customers and, and to lead to a transaction. But the problem with it is you need huge resources to deal with that inbound traffic. So it's only been something that the largest organizations can do. The promise of generative AI is everybody else could, could serve click-to-message ads and actually be able to address the issues that are raised by their potential customers. 
and you can do it for 2 billion plus users on these platforms. So there's one example of a real tangible use case that you, you know, you have a company who's, who has the technical chops to do this and a, a business where there is a clear business model from deploying it. So that, that would be one example. And I, I suppose, yeah, it's interesting that you've recently gone back to Meta. I did want to sort of, I guess, dig into, well, I was going to say the fangs, but perhaps we should talk more about the Magnificent Seven or whatever uh, sort of term we're using for the various kind of dominant US tech majors. Perhaps we'll start with Alphabet. So you, you guys have held Alphabet in the past, but don't currently do so. What would have to happen to kind of put that back on the agenda as kind of a potential position in the fund? Well, we run a concentrated portfolio. And so not owning something shouldn't, shouldn't be taken as a negative view or a negative comment on a company. Instead, we, you know, we have you know, very clear criteria about looking for companies who can grow their top line very substantially and um, where that opportunity is underestimated and deploy capital in a really profitable way. Now, Alphabet is, is a phenomenal business. I, you know, search, I think, is one of the best business models the world has ever seen. So the challenge that comes with that is every, you know, everything else you do has to have an impact on, on a business that the scale of, of search. Um, and the challenge has been that they've, you know, for Alphabet, is that they've, they've struggled in some of those other businesses to actually do anything that can have a meaningful impact at the level of the overall organization. And so that's not to say anything negative about the, the core business and, and what they've achieved there. And so, you know, if you tie this into your, your previous topic around AI, you know, th there are just lots of big questions, I think, at the moment about how that might ultimately impact on Alphabet's business that we, that we just don't know the answer to. Mm, interesting. And again, sort of moving through them, but Microsoft I mentioned is kind of, some people have identified that as a kind of AI winner and a real big player there already. Is, is there anything that it would take to sort of attract you into Microsoft or you, what are the, what's the situation there? I think that, let me, taking, taking a step back. So, you know, if, as, as an investor, you can get exposure to the index for basis points. And mm. that's, you know, that's, that's a good idea for, for many personal investors. And if you're going to pay for active management, I think what you, you know, what you what you want to get is an exposure that's very different from the index. And so for me, you know, I, I think it's really important that we have a clear definition of what we're trying to do, which is own the world's greatest growth companies. And and you know, it's greatest future growth companies. And so so we you know, we'll pick those, you know, not on the basis of the large components of indices, not you know, not the world's biggest companies, which I think in part is a representation of past success, but instead it's thinking about you know, where to from here. And so I, I think to have a, to have something like Microsoft in the fund, we'd have to have a really differentiated view on, on the opportunity there. And you know, it, it's challenging in a way is, is not dissimilar to, to the one that Alphabet has that, you know, it's had some really successful franchises, you know, their operating systems franchise, the productivity tools, you know, the, these, these are a huge, really successful, really high returning businesses. So it's like, what do you do next to get that, the overall group, the overall Microsoft group really growing significantly? And that's, I mean, it's not a good business, but it's just does it fit with the investment philosophy that we have at Scottish Mortgage about finding those companies that over the next five or 10 years can see you know, their, their revenue grow by several times and really exploiting new opportunities with explosive growth? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an interesting dilemma, isn't it? The classic, I suppose, active fund manager dilemma whereby these... Dominant stocks are so uh, 
so present in the the index and um it's i suppose you have to work very hard to find those kind of names that can do something um even better one name that you do hold and you seem to have been adding to again is amazon so maybe just take me through you know what's been going on there and what your kind of outlook is now yeah sure so amazon is been as an organization just really good at you know thinking about what growth at scale means and they've always been prepared to experiment and to fail but they've also scaled the amount of experimentation they're doing as they've scaled their business um so so always thought about how do you deliver that next leg of growth i think that you know, as as we came through covid um they invested very heavily in their retail business to support the extra demand that they saw but i you know, when you, when you and and just to give you some context in that it you know i think it took them 25 years to reach their pre covid scale and fulfillment network and then they doubled that fulfillment center again so they built the entire business again in the space of 2 years they built a delivery infrastructure the you know the size of dhl and fedex you know in again in the space of 2 years now when you go through an investment phase like that in in such a short period of time you know it's inevitably going to be there's going to be some inefficiencies there and so you know that that hurt profitability and what i think you're seeing now is entering a phase where actually they are now streamlining that capacity becoming more efficient again getting the cost to serve down and it's really stuck coming through in the profitability of the retail business at the same time you've had challenges in the in the cloud services business so that's providing outsourced it infrastructure to other companies and there you've just been through a a, a period of weaker demand as companies have focused on cost and how do they get their own it budget under control in an environment of of higher interest rates etc but that's a transient feature that's that doesn't call into question the long term structural growth story there so i think you've you've got two businesses which have been somewhat underestimated i think amazon going back to terry smith's argument about the um you know are, are people too quick to jump to to concluding who the winners are i think people thought that the amazon wasn't on the front foot with ai i don't agree with that i i think they're going to be extremely well placed you know for example you know, there's 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 500 million alexa enabled devices in the world and when those things are upgraded to a generative ai system you know this is a company with huge distribution and just because they haven't done it yet you know I, i think people's perception of their role in ai will change quite quickly in the future so it, you know i i think just moving to a phase where you know each of those businesses have have had temporary headwinds but i i think you you you're moving through those and into into a into a, a much more um encouraging phase phase for the business do you think there are many cases where there is not enough um not enough of an ai gain priced in yet because i suppose a lot of people would argue maybe it's gone the other way for many names you know there's all been too much good news kind of priced in yeah i think that if this is this is a general purpose technology there's not many businesses that wouldn't benefit from more intelligence but i i think what you know what what i'm looking for is everybody's going to have access to this technology for a price So why is it going to make any one particular business better relative to its competition? Is it do they have some proprietary data set, some pro- proprietary distribution, you know, do they they have a a service which is going to get better if you add AI to it in a way that others can't just copy? So I don't think it necessarily falls equally. I think one area where I I think there there should be huge opportunity is in healthcare. You know, you you have massive data sets that you know where where 
you know, that we, we don't have enough capacity and in human intelligence to process those data sets and to draw useful conclusions from them. And I think that's right through from diagnostics to, to drug discovery. There just is a better model from using some of these tools. And particularly if it can be combined with other technologies, whether that's genome sequencing or mRNA production tools. So I think that's that's one area where you know, that that's an entire sector has been has been dreadfully weak for the past eighteen months, two years. So I don't think anybody's particularly excited about the technology there at the moment. I guess that's a, a good excuse for us to turn some of your kind of prominent holdings there. So, you know, Moderna is one people tend to talk about a lot. But what's, I suppose, your kind of bull case there? What what would be a, a good catalyst for things to kind of rewrite over time? I know you see things in a much you know longer period than kind of a few months or a year or so on, but nevertheless. Well, I think um, in healthcare, one of the challenges is as a sector, it's more dependent on external financing. So in a period where you know, interest rates are rising, people are worried about access to capital for these companies. I think there's been a hangover from COVID, um, you know, that, that's changed patterns of demand, which has been quite difficult to deal with. And then you know, there've been concerns about new weight loss drugs and what the implications of, of success for those drugs might mean elsewhere. But I think underlyingly, you're just, you're going through a process of moving to tool sets, um, the, the, the method of drug discovery hasn't really changed much in the in the past 40 years. You, you know, have had very sophisticated tools that a very small number of people can use. But I think you know the, those that those approaches don't scale to problems the size of biology and chemistry. And so I think what you you know you're seeing a whole set of companies that are, are building tools that enable a much higher definition view of biology, a, a much more computational way of of searching for new drugs, different ways of 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 screening patients and diagnosing patients that you know that takes advantage of the huge data sets that we now have access to. Um, it, our largest holding in, in healthcare is Moderna, which people will be familiar with for, for the mRNA vaccine that, that helped get us out of, of lockdowns during COVID. If effectively, they are a software company. They design drugs in silicon. Um, it's not people with PhDs at lab benches, you know, pipetting. It's, it's done on a computer. And if you look at one of the challenges of the drugs industry, it's been that success with any given drug um, says nothing about you know success in in other areas. What I think is interesting about Moderna is that mRNA has been shown firstly to be safe because it's been it's been injected into billions of people, but also to be effective in in getting the body to create the proteins that you want it to create. And so you know, the, the likelihood of success from deploying this technology in all sorts of other areas that are really important has has gone up massively. Um, and so it's that probability of success that I, I think is really interesting for for that company and, and massively underestimated by the market. Mm, mm. I mean, are there some people argue things like mRNA potentially has you know vast applications, but is not that well tolerated? You know, how would you is that a concern for you? How would you kind of deal with that? I think that um, we just we have some really difficult problems um, that we haven't been able to solve. And this technology offers the prospect of doing that. So, you know, think about respiratory disease, for example. You know, what we consider to be flu is actually about ten different viruses. So, people have a flu shot and think think it it doesn't really work because they get symptoms, but actually, you you know, you don't know what what virus they got. Um, Moderna is going after all ten of those different viruses. Um, and the technology allows you to combine vaccines into a single shot. So they're already in the lab testing a combined 
flu, RSV, COVID shot, which would protect protect people against all three of of those viruses. Um, and it, you know, as they make progress over time, you could you could just end up in a world of much more effective shots for respiratory disease. This is a top five killer in the UK. It's a huge burden on the NHS, um, and we haven't been able to address it in any other way. If you look at latent viruses, something like CMV, um, you know, it's it's too complex a, a virus for uh, us to have found a way of solving with traditional vaccine approaches. It's the number one cause of birth defects in the Western world. So if you could have a vaccine for that using this technology, it would be huge unmet clinical need. Something like EBV, which is responsible for mono, um, is is thought to be the the cause of multiple sclerosis. So I I think that the there's huge promise to this technology in, in, in big areas of unmet clinical need. And that's what's so exciting about it. And would you expect to see, I suppose, that excitement reflected in the shape of the portfolio in future? I mean, would you see it becoming even more of a kind of healthcare oriented funds? Um, similarly, are there other themes you think are going to become more and more prominent in the portfolio? You know, when, we, when we're looking for companies, we don't, we don't start with a theme and um, and then try and find ways to get exposure to it. Mm. For us, it's much more about can you find an exceptional business where you have real belief in the people that are running it, where you think there's some edge. And then the themes sort of emerge from that bottom of process of, of finding companies. So I think you know, what's, ha- what's interesting about healthcare is you're finding different people you respect, different leaders who have achieved real success, talking about the same themes, the same trends. Um, and and where you know you you clearly have a system that isn't functioning particularly well at the moment. If you look at healthcare costs as a proportion of GDP, they're unsustainable. We need new ways of doing things. So I think that healthcare piece is is really important. But it's you know does does it become a bigger theme? I think it just depends if you if you're finding the the companies and opportunities to invest in. Um, I think you know so so that would be one. I think some of the ones you know that that we've we've talked about continue to get more prominent. Mm. You know whether whether that's AI, whether it is the digitization of our world. You know if you if you look at um, you know um, for, for example e-commerce. You know it's been something that has has improved our lives in in the Western world. Um, but that's in you know when we've had existing established efficient retail infrastructure. If you look at, for example, what Mercado Libre is doing um, in Latin America or Coupang in, in Korea, you know, it's, it, there, there isn't the same efficient physical retail sector for them to compete with. And suddenly, for the first time, they're bringing a huge range of products at competitive prices to consumers who haven't been able to access that before. And, and that has a really transformational impact. Um, so that, you know, that, that would be another um, um, PDD um, Chinese company that that owns Timu, again a different model of of discount retail that's you know having a huge impact on on Western economies. So that digitization theme I think remains remains really important. Um, and then and then I you know if you look where the dollars are going at the moment in the broader economy, you know as as we seek to reduce emissions and um, and you know I I think post carbon economy. Is going to is going to throw up some huge opportunities for the people that, that can address this, just like it has for for Tesla over the past decade. Yeah, I'm I'm interested. You mentioned kind of Mercado Libre and PDD. Um, I did want to touch on your stance on China. Um, you know, you guys were very enthusiastic about um, sort of the Chinese internet giants and so on, but China's perhaps become a, a much more hostile place for for investors recently. 
what's your general kind of stance there now? And and do you kind of have a sense of what you think is kind of, I suppose, hardy in the face of regulation? What is and what isn't? For example, you, you don't seem to hold Alibaba anymore, but you do hold things like Tencent and Meituan and so on. Yeah, you know, China has been a a challenging place to invest mm. over the past two or three years. Um, and I, I'd say there are two different sets of issues which you, you need to separate. Um, one is about the sort of great power competition with the US and you know, that increasingly hostile environment between the two countries um, and all, the, all of the challenges and threats that that entails as a Western investor in China. And then the second set of challenges have been more, much more domestic Chinese challenges around a much more uncertain regulatory environment, um, some interventions from, from different branches of government that have made it really difficult for the for the corporate sector and for the for the founder leaders of private companies. And 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 that first set of issues and, and this sort of you know great power competition set of issues. That, that for us is really about what do you want your total exposure to be to China in the portfolio? How much of the fund are you prepared to have in that area? And then the bottom-up issues are more about, well, what type of companies do you want to own? You know, it's, the bar is higher for a Chinese to be in, company to be included in the portfolio today. They must be doing something pretty special. I have a pretty, pretty interesting opportunity. I think one of Alibaba's challenges has been that um, just being a, a very big company and and seen as a sort of alternative power base in, in in China is not something that's been welcome. So you know, as an investor, when you think about what's the upside in a stock, you know, is how realistic is it for a company to be a hundred billion dollars of market cap? How realistic is it to be five hundred billion dollars of market cap? Um, because you know, we've seen that there's actually a very you know you you encounter real regulatory hostility when you achieve that type of scale. And so that's that's one of the 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 reasons for moving away from from Alibaba. At the same time, you know, why, if, if it's so difficult, why, in, why invest at all in, in Chinese companies? Well, you know, our PDD, um, the, the Chinese discount retailer, has been, if it's not our best performing stock, um, it, it was just about our best performing stock last year. It, it, it was the best performing stock three years ago as well, I think. You know, the, you, you see these businesses led by exceptional people able to grow really quickly at already real scale. And, and what PDD have done is um, you know, brought online the next half a billion Chinese online users by creating a shopping experience that was both very low cost, but also fun and engaging and entertaining. And then having attracted those people, grown that business, they turned it profitable. Um, you're now seeing them compete in the deep discount segments in, in Western markets. They've launched in the US, they've launched in the UK, Australia, et cetera. And people immediately write them off. This pricing isn't sustainable. How will they, how will they ever make profits selling products at, the, at these sort of prices? Well, actually, they've demonstrated that they can do that really effectively in China. Um, so I, I don't think they should be written off in, in Western markets. So I do think you know China is either the, the second or, or first largest economy in the world, depending on what measure you use. It's home to some really um, brilliant entrepreneurs who've shown they can scale. So I think it's also a very difficult place to ignore as an investor. I mean, I, I suppose it's interesting. You mentioned you have kind of a big now play on a Latin American e-commerce company and so on. I suppose I have a couple of thoughts. One is, do you increasingly, I suppose, have to look beyond developed markets, even if it's not in China, for these growth opportunities? And 
how does your Chinese experience, I suppose, colour your attitude towards geopolitical risk and the kind of perhaps some of those uncertainties we might expect in emerging markets? One of the one of the things we've sort of observed over the past five years is that actually, you know, whether a com- you know the, the classification of a company as an emerging markets company or a developed markets company doesn't necessarily tell you anything about how innovative it is, how well run it is. So you know if if you look at what Mercado Libre are, are doing in Latin America, you know they they've thrived in really difficult economic circumstances with much higher inflation and much higher interest rates than, than we have here, you know, a ruthlessly competitive environment um, and, and been really successful. You know, if you look at something like um, Meituan in China in food delivery, you know, that they, they emerged out of a competitive melee of, of thousands of copycat food delivery businesses. And by the time they achieve scale, they're really battle-hardened, ruthless operators with a clear vision of what they want to achieve, the ability to operate at real scale, much more competitive companies than, than we've seen in, in Western markets. So I, I do think there is you know, a challenge about what's the ultimate size of some of these companies because, you, you know, because of trade disputes, because it's, it's harder to have a global footprint. And so you know, we have to be careful about thinking about what the terminal value is, the, the size of these businesses ultimately. You know, I think in terms of judging their innovation, their creativity, their competitiveness, you know, we, you know, I think you just, you've got to take each case as it comes and, and, not, and not be colored by that developed emerging distinction. Mm, mm. And I suppose switching back to developed markets, you know, many of our listeners will be very interested in in UK shares, and you know, they're not massively prominent in your kind of portfolio. Um, is that something you have been more interested in, given uh, the perennial uh, argument that UK valuations are very low and so on? Um, what's your take on on the domestic market? Yeah, we we've got relatively little in in domestic uk companies we we own shares in Ocado grocery delivery business or wise the money transfer business um you know we we're 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 always on the lookout and i think you know the challenge for us for really high growth companies is just is almost finding that ambition you know that we have great technology coming out of uk universities but but you know, finding companies that really want to take that to scale to 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 become a build a very large business on the back of it, and so it's you know that's 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 really the question for us. And alongside that, it's you know the, what's the funding environment like for these companies? You know, because their you know their international counterparts, particularly in the U.S. and China, have very ready access to venture funding to scale their businesses. I think that's a, a more challenging set of issues in the U.K., particularly for. For, for larger growth companies, we're very excited about Wise. I, I think I think that's a business which has great potential. It's money transfer is is one of these things that has, comes with very high associated costs. Um, you know, their model they can offer consumers and businesses a much better deal. It's you know still very lowly penetrated as a product relative to to the market, and it's it's run with that long term vision. So yeah, you know, where we can find that, yeah, you know, we're very happy to get behind it and support it. Mm, interesting. Um, turning to, I suppose, a, another subject that you've kind of mentioned a few times, you've spoken about founders and uh, culture and so on. Um, we've briefly touched on kind of Elon Musk, you, you still have Tesla, you have um, SpaceX. But people do kind of worry about the kind of erratic behaviour and the various controversies. So I suppose f- 
flipping the bull case, how much of a risk to the fund is Elon Musk? Why do we own companies like Tesla, like SpaceX? Um, it's because of the ambition that they have. They're not, um, you know, they're, they're trying to build big new industries and businesses. And in the face of massive inertia and, you know, in doing things that, that people have tried for decades unsuccessfully to do. And it takes a pretty special kind of individual or corporate culture to take on those challenges successfully. And you shouldn't expect that it will be people who will conform to stereotypes that we would like to impose on them as business people. So it's, a, you know, you want to harness that vision, that drive, that energy, and then you want to make sure that there is a corporate structure around it to support it. Um, turn it into successful operations and deliver deliver on that vision. So I just don't think you get, you know, electric vehicles at massive scale. You know, you don't you don't get a commercial space industry. You know, you don't get low Earth orbit telecommunications without people who are really prepared to take on the status quo and see that through. For us, we want to invest in people with that drive and vision, and we know that they won't always succeed. But it's you know, if you're going to find companies that you can make many multiples of your money in, it's because they they were unreasonable and prepared to take on things that others wouldn't. Yeah, and um, I suppose we'll see see who pops up else in the in the portfolio in future in terms of uh, those individuals. Well, I think I'm as as I look across the portfolio, I, you know, I I see lots of people that are taking on. Yeah, really difficult challenges, mm. um, and there's obviously lots of lots of different characters within that. But you know, take I know something like Northvolt, which is is run by um, a, a former Tesla employee. You know, that they, they are trying to build Europe's electric vehicle battery capacity. You know, you've talked a little bit about geopolitics. You know, one 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 thing that falls out of that is. You, know, you want to have local supply chains in in some of these newer industries, yeah. You know, but but they're really difficult to do. So, you know, having people who can who are prepared to take that risk to put billions of dollars of capacity into the ground to try and compete in these markets is is really important. Very interesting. Well, I'm I'm afraid that is all we have time for. But lots of uh, food for thoughts. Very interesting discussion. I thought so. Tom, I just like to thank you for your time. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank our excellent producer, Maddie Apthorpe, and I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Take care.